0: We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Next week, the Lord willing, we'll be back to John 12, where I left off. But this morning, the book of Acts. You know, the New Testament has the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then Acts, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. And then the, the Epistles and the book of Revelation. In the Gospels... You could look at it this way. Our Lord is presented as incarnate, living, suffering, dying, rising, and then ascending. In the Acts, he is proclaimed as having done all that. And in the epistles, he is explained. The implications of the sufferings and glory of Christ are explained to the people of God, the local churches. So in Acts, we have the proclamation of Christ having come in accordance with the promises of the Old Testament, having lived, having died, having rose from the dead, having ascended. If you look at Acts chapter 1, first, verse 1, verses 1 and following, listen to these words. A former account I made, O Theophilus. Now, the former account is the book of, the Gospel of Luke, okay? So the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, notice the words, began both to do and teach. What's the implication? If he began to do and teach, it seems to imply that he's continually doing, teaching, doing things and teaching, but he's in heaven. So, the doing and teaching continues through a different medium than his human nature, his apostles primarily. Of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, threw the, he through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So in one sense, the book of Acts is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through the apostles, primarily Peter and Paul, right? If you've read Acts, you know that Jerusalem and Peter kind of take prominence at the beginning, and then the Gentile mission and Paul, and Luke ends up being with him in Acts chapter 16. So it's the, it's the, the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through the apostles well, upon his ascension. We could say that. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that it's Pentecost, a Jewish Festival rooted in the Old Testament, um, where they would thank God for the wonderful annual harvest of of, of, uh, of their crops, which is very interesting. But I won't go that way. Hundreds of thou- and thousands of people came to this city during this time. So. If Jerusalem was about 100,000 people at that time, and I think that's what scholars say, it could have doubled, tripled, or even more three times a year when they had these annual festivals. So these, this festival, these people that came there would probably be in tents outside the city for a week or so, or I forgot how long, or if they had family members, they might be in their, in, their, in their houses. But they congregated at the temple at various times, and they had this massive festivals um, and they were religious people. It's not that they were, you know, pagans in the worst kind of sense. They they thought they were okay with God. Our Lord had lived, had preached, had healed, had suffered, had died, had been been buried, uh, had been uh, rose from the dead, revealed Himself to many, taught the disciples for a brief time, then gloriously. Entered into heaven. In Acts chapter 2, large part of it, we have a sermon by Peter. It was during this early formation of what we might call the apostolic church, not the apostolic, not that kind of apostolic church, you know, the old apostles, okay? The, the early church. It was a transitional period. If you read the book of Acts and you just think of Peter and Paul and the other apostles, they went from Saturday Sabbath meetings in synagogues to Sunday, Lord's Day, first day meetings with the saints. They went from one thing to another, and, but it's a transitional period. The development of doctrine and practice from the old forms to the new, from what we call the Old Testament to the New Testament— from three annual festivals in Jerusalem and weekly synagogue meetings every Saturday to the assembly of the saints on every Sunday, the Lord's Day. We go from scribes, Pharisees, and rabbis to pastors or elders and deacons among the members of the church. Slowly but surely, apostolic regulations for the church were delivered to the saints. Church worship and church government, regulations for reading, Publicly, the word of God, teaching and preaching, the written word of God, corporate singing, corporate prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline, all these things were beginning to take shape. And it's actually rooted in a promise that Jesus gave the disciples that, if we ever get there, we'll see it in John 14 through 16, where he promises them, when he goes, He won't leave them orphans. He'll send them the helper, and the helper is going to, in their souls, their minds, this is divine revelation, okay, to the apostles, will help them remember what Jesus taught them, teach them new things, the implications of his sufferings and glory, and things about the future. And as you read the New Testament, you see that slowly but surely developing. So the book of Acts then is a history of how the apostles of Christ applied the great commission of Christ given to them by Christ. It is the continued work of Christ from heaven through the apostles. Once Jesus ascended, what did he do? He used the apostles for the foundation uh, of his church. The cornerstone is him, but the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, so this sermon, we don't know how many thousands of people heard this sermon. By the way, it is possible to preach to thousands. Just read up on George Whitfield; he used to preach to thousands of people without electricity. But this sermon, um, I'm not going to read the whole text. I want to I want to focus on verses 40 through 42. If you've been here for more than six years or so. We've been in this passage before. But Acts 2, 40 through 42 is what I want to focus on. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about three Thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in, I think it should read, in the, the prayers, the church's prayers. Very fascinating. Three thousand souls were added to them. Who were these souls? Um. A few of them are probably mentioned by name later in the book of Acts. Could they have been people who heard the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth? Yes, they could have been. And I, my hunch is that a lot of them were like this. So when he preaches about our Lord being appointed by heaven, capital H, by God, to be both Lord and Christ, Savior of sinners... It's not an absolute novelty to all the people. Maybe some of them had never heard this before. They surely had some sort of messianic hope based on the Old Testament. Whether or not their hope terminated on the right Messiah or not is another issue. But they had a hope. But now these people, 3,000 of them, how would you like to have a church salvation and baptism of 3,000 people? I was thinking about that yesterday going, I don't think I would want that. I don't think I could handle it. we just say, okay, we're going to plant 10 churches with the 3,000 people. How are we going to do that, though? You know, It would be wonderful or marvelous. You know how sometimes people say, we just want to be a New Testament church. I don't know if I want to be, have 3,000 people saved all at once. It's a lot of pastoral counseling. And then I'd need counseling, which I do need counseling. But amazing thing happened here. Some, of, Most of you have probably read the account. You know that Peter dips into the Old Testament, like Jesus did, to prove that Jesus is the promised skull-crushing seed of the woman, uh, the lion of the tribe of Ju- Judah, the branch of Jehovah, the, uh, the, uh, the, the child of the virgin, all these promises in the Old Testament, they all terminate, they find their, their target, their bullseye in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's proclaiming redemption accomplished by the Savior and offering the forgiveness of sins to these religious people, which in itself sounds kind of offensive, uh, depending upon the climate of somebody's soul. So in my exposition of verses 40 through 42, notice, first of all, a brief summary of Peter's preaching. I get this from the first clause here, and with many other words. Okay, so what we read in Acts 2 uh, through verse 39, whenever his sermon starts is like verse 14 or so, That's not the entirety of Peter's sermon, right? Because Luke says, with many other words, not just the words he just wrote about, he wrote, but other words. So if you're sitting here going, Peter's sermon's like 20 verses. Pastor, why do you preach so long? The apostle Peter preached for 39 seconds. I can read that in 39 seconds. Uh, We know otherwise because we're told here with many other words. So Luke's account is selective, not exhaustive. Is it okay for Luke to select and not exhaust everything the apostles said every time they preached? Yes, otherwise the books would be way too long. So he wrote what he wrote for a distinct purpose. But notice also it was both doctrinal and practical. He testified and exhorted them. So he told them truth. Then he told them what they ought to do in light of truth. So he, it was both doctrinal and practical. Thus saith the Lord, therefore, do this, think this, live this, whatever. But notice also at the end of verse 40, it was direct and to the point. Be saved from this perverse generation. As Eddie was reading Ephesians 4, I was thinking to myself, some of the sins he's talking about there, I think as Western 21st century people, we sometimes think our culture is kind of new and it's cutting a new swath and how to sin. Yeah, you read the New Testament, there's some ugly stuff that was going on in the first century, right? Same stuff, just looks different. We just find new ways. You know, our hearts are idle factories, as Calvin said a long time ago. This perverse generation, the, uh, the, that generation was perverse, but it doesn't mean other generations aren't perverse, right? Because we can say the same thing about our generation. So Peter had proved to them that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, he had proved to them that they killed him. But even that was by God's determined counsel. He proclaimed Christ's resurrection and the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of majesty in heaven, and that he is both Lord and Christ. He had told them very plainly up above, Repent which means here's what it doesn't mean clean up your life so that you might you might be good enough to go to Jesus and it's repentance is actually a change of mind it's going it says i didn't realize how bad of a sinner i was I'm filthy, I'm foul within and without, and I've done things and thought things and haven't done other things I should have done that I'm ashamed of, and so your, your mind goes from not recognizing that to recognizing that, and you turn from that old way of thinking and you go right to Christ with all that guilt and shame and filth. Okay, Repentance in that sense is not the cleaning up of one's life in order to make yourself more approved by God. It means changing your mind about your wicked heart and going to God with it, saying, foul eye to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So he was very uh, plain with them, very clear. Turn from your sins. With your sins, turn from them. Bring them to Christ for cleansing, for forgiveness. So he's telling these religious Jews, you haven't kept the law like you might think you have. You have transgressed God's holy commands. You are guilty and in need of righteousness and forgiveness. It's the same message we need. It's not just unique to them. Now, This is what I want to focus on, the twofold result of Peter's preaching. This is found in verses 41 and 42, Acts 2, 41 and 42. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread, and in corporate prayer. Um, Notice the first part of verse 41. Some did not respond favorably. Then those who gladly received his word. What does that imply? Some didn't gladly receive his word, right? So it's not necessarily everybody who heard the sermon got saved. Some didn't receive his word gladly, but some did. They gladly received his word, They gladly repented. It's interesting, right? Because in verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized. They gladly repented. (laughs) They gladly received his word. And I think we can say they gladly repented. They were gladly baptized. They were happy to do it. And when, you know, grace illumines the soul, we're happy to do it, right? We're happy to say I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need righteousness. I need Jesus. Jesus, what do I do to show my thankfulness? You get baptized and you join a church and you continue in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and 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 the supper and and the prayers and you you do the one another's of, you know, the Ephesians 4 you forgive uh, fellow saints, and you stop stealing. You get a job, you know, all those kinds of things. They gladly received his word. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were saved, and they were glad in doing so. We should be glad, you know. We should be happy. I, I've repented. I've been baptized. I've joined a church. I'm walking with Christ. And then, you know, we should be honest. It's not like we're super saints or anything, right? We're just saints, right? St. David. I called him St. David this morning. He said, what? St. David. To the saints, Paul writes several times. They gladly received his word. And then notice as well, they were baptized. Those who gladly received his word were baptized just as Jesus commanded in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is Peter doing? What were the apostles doing there in Jerusalem and during this event? They were doing what Jesus told them to do, right? Here's our confession of faith on this. They were baptized. By the way, does it say they were baptized? Or that water was baptized? Persons get baptized, right? Water doesn't get baptized. That's mode of baptism. Baptism isn't the sprinkling of water. It has to do with persons. Persons are baptized, not water. Anyway, listen to this. If you don't get that, you can ask me later. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign of his or her fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. That's our confession of faith. I think it's scripturally accurate. Baptism is a sign, and you've been here long enough to know, that signs signify something. What does baptism signify? Union or participation in Christ or the benefits of Christ. It is whose sign is it? Baptism is whose sign? Well, whoever instituted it, right? It's the sign of Christ. It's Christ's sign. We could say it's God's sign, To the party baptized, by the way, the baptizend is the party baptized, but the baptized who witness another baptism can also recall that sign signifying the same thing for them as you're sitting here, hopefully in a few weeks, watching somebody get baptized. So it's a means of grace. It's a sign signifying fellowship with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, remission of all sins, cleansing, and new life. It's a visible word. It tells baptized persons that they are gods in Christ. By the way, do you think Peter explained baptism or the apostles explained baptiz- what baptism entails for these that were baptized, these 3,000 or did they just go, whatever you say, I'll do, even if I'm ignorant of it. I'm just, it's implicit faith. It's not based on anything God has said. It's based on just what you said, Peter. I, I, I kind of tend to think, no. Um, you know, sometimes people say, oh, look at that. 3,000 people were baptized right on the spot. Well, actually, it's, you kind of have to read that in there. Were they catechized? before they got baptized. I think most likely in subsequent church history, it's very clear, people were catechized before they got baptized so that they understood what was happening. These people are forgiven due to Christ, righteous due to Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and will be glorified due to Christ. Baptism signifies all that. And notice not only that um, they gladly received his word and they were baptized, but it also says they were added to the church. They were added. When it, that means at least this much. This primitive church could be added to and therefore numbered. It's not too hard to... Come to that conclusion, right? It was not some nebulous glob consisting of whoever walked into a meeting, but a distinctly identifiable body of believing baptized persons committed to the Lord and to one another. In Acts chapter 20, I'm just going to read this verse It's verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. This is Paul to the Ephesian elders. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock, not all flocks. These elders at Ephesus were responsible for the flock. Among which, among the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So if I'm an Ephesian elder and the Apostle Paul's telling me the flock, I immediately, I know what he's talking about, the members of my church. Like I'm not, you know, the pastor of Palmdale. My neighbors are not my sheep. Other Christians are not my sheep. The sheep I am specifically responsible for are the ones that I I am among, and within that amongstness, that's a new word there, uh, I've been identified as a shepherd. Okay? I didn't impose myself, believe it or not. We had a vote, and uh, 16 yeses and one abstention. I I abstained. I didn't vote. You voted yes. Yes. Remember that meeting? I didn't appoint myself. The people acknowledged it and recognized it. The flock. Not a nebulous glob consisting of whoever walked into a meeting. But a distinctly identifiable body of believing and numberable body of believing baptized persons committed to the Lord and to one another. And then fourth, notice this. And we're going to... Well, I don't know how much we'll focus on this, but according to my page numbers, a lot. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. Uh, John Calvin calls this the four marks whereby the true and natural face of the church may be judged. Apostolic doctrine, fellowship, sharing of our goods, and talents. Breaking of bread, I think here it does refer to the supper. It doesn't always refer to the supper. I think here it does. And I've been saying this over and over, the prayers. And the reason why I say the prayers is it does have an article in the Greek text. Sometimes English doesn't translate that and call it the prayers, and I get it. I don't know why. Uh, You know, I didn't even check the King James translation. Maybe the King James has the prayers, the New King James that I'm reading here says, and in prayers, but it should say the prayers, the church prayers. We see church prayer later on in the book of Acts. We see it regulated by the time you get to First Timothy, an epistle written to Timothy when he was in Ephesus, and, and the, uh, the apostle's deputy in Ephesus, the church Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, how the church is to be regulated, is very clear. It is to have prayers um, offered up by the men. If you want to get that detailed in Acts chapter, uh, First Timothy chapter two. So I think this is referring to church prayer. Now let's look at this statement. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Notice the subjects. They, the subjects. They. And they, who's they in the text? It is those who gladly received his word and were baptized, right? That's the they. These are the same ones who were added to the church, okay? So this is, when you get added to the church, you're a part of they, okay? All of them continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, all of them continued steadfast in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the corporate church prayers. All of them continued steadfastly in all four elements. Now, how long this group of 3,000 people did this, we don't know, because like I said before, some of them weren't from the local area. They had... They, Went back home. What would it have been like, by the way, to, to go back home? Say you're you know, a 22-year-old Jewish kid, and you had the means to go, and you went to Pentecost, and suddenly you believed in Jesus, and then you went back home and said, uh, I'll go to the Sabbath school with you every Saturday, but I'm going to meet with the Christians on Sunday as well. And then over time, you didn't even do that. That would be... Um, traumatic, but here Peter is talking about those people there at least for a time, and we know by the time you read the epistles what's happening, apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, right? So the subjects, they, notice the action, continued steadfastly. We could say, this is their corporate way of life together. Synonyms for continued steadfastly include the following. To adhere to. To be devoted to. To give unremitting care to. Unremitting care to. So being part of this church, at least, meant something, right? It demanded their time. It demanded their presence. It demanded their minds, their gifts, their goods, their involvement. By the way, that's how churches work and flourish. Without that, it's, we're crippled. I and mean, we're, we're crippled anyway, okay? But we don't need to be doubly crippled. It was a huge redirection of life and priorities. I have a friend Uh, that counsels uh, married couples, friends that counsel married couples. And this whole redirection of life and priorities thing came into their counseling room one time with this couple. And the wife says, you know, my husband and I are Christians, but he doesn't go to church throughout the whole college and NFL football season. He's gone for three months. Friday, or Thursday now, Thursday night, He's in his room with all his screens and all his bets going, Friday night, sat, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and then Monday night after work. I don't see him for th- three months in church. And my friend challenged this guy. I don't know the end of the story, but he challenged him. He says, you mean you, you believe in Jesus and there's been no re- uh, huge redirection of life and priority? Something's wrong here. When you are saved from this perverse generation, guess what changes? Everything, right? Life is now revolved around the Lord, not the other way around. Recall the fact, I brought this up before, that many of these people did not reside in Jerusalem. They ended up at some point going back to their hometowns at some later point in time. Some of them maybe didn't, couldn't go back, they were told, by their family, because they could have been staying in tents outside with their you know, parents, and maybe dad said, you're not coming home. Get your own place. But some of them did go back, obviously. What did they do? You know? What if, you know, we're that 22 year old guy or girl and we went back with others to our little hometown, wherever it was, and they're real believing, we were real Christians. Guess what they did? They continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine, in, in, what's the next one? Thank you. The fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. How do we know that? We know that in part because letters, Epistles, at least three of them, probably four of them. I had to count my fingers. One, two. uh, Were written to Jews not in Jerusalem later on during the, the first century. Right? First Peter, Second Peter, Hebrews, written by the Apostle Paul, and probably James were written to congregations that had a lot of Jewish people in them. Uh, Romans did as well. Uh, Ephesus had that Jew-Gentile thing going as well because they were scattered abroad. Uh, Peter recognizes Paul's letters later on in the New Testament as authoritatively binding upon those that Peter wrote to. He says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. There's Hebrews. Peter's writing to Jews scattered abroad. Paul wrote a letter to the same people, as also in all his letters. So he has Hebrews and a bunch of other letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, As if Peter's letter is easy to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. Watch this. As they do also the rest of the scriptures, that means Paul's letters are scripture, to their own destruction. So by the time Peter and Paul wrote their epistles, churches with Jewish Christians existed outside of Jerusalem. That's why I said they continued steadfastly. They did the same thing. They just did it elsewhere. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. They gave themselves to that. They reoriented their lives, not only around those elements that they did, but they changed the weekly day of worship as well based on the resurrection of the Savior. I think we can't kind of relate to that unless... uh, well, unless we were Jewish and went to synagogue on Saturdays as a child. But they continued steadfastly. Sadly, in our day, many churches are administrated way less strictly, even than many social clubs. I was reading a book by Sinclair Ferguson on church membership or something like that. And he... It might be in an appendix. Maybe it's something. Like, maybe it's not a book. Anyway, it was Sinclair Ferguson, and he was comp- he was showing how some social clubs, um, name one, whatever they are, ladies clubs, men's clubs, lions club, you know, things like that, have have membership not only dues but also uh, responsibilities, and if you don't live up to it. They have a meeting about you, and you're gone. Or they send you a letter, and they warn you, and then you're out. Social clubs often have requirements for their members. They always do. And if you don't keep your word and fulfill your membership commitments, you're eventually cut off. Some churches in our day sport large attendance and large membership roles on paper but there's very little steadfastness in the four elements Peter mentions here. here. I've seen, you know, it's, sorry, I'm not picking on the SBC, but it happens to be out there. Southern Baptist Convention has churches that have like 20,000 on their rolls. I have heard more than once of some of those churches investigating their membership and realizing they had 68 people on their membership, active membership role, that were in a grave. Oops. (laughs) People treat church instead of steadfastly continuing in these four elements once you're saved, once you're baptized, once you're added to the church, every single week of their life. Instead of doing that, people come and go as they please and treat the church like they do a public spiritual welfare service instead of a spiritual community of committed disciples of Jesus Christ working together for the common cause of the gospel and spiritual growth growth and service in the name of Christ. But when we read the New Testament, conversion to Christ changes everything. And if it doesn't, Now comes the scolding. It does. These early believers in Christ persevered in these things. So we can say, therefore, true faith has fruit, right? There's evidences in one's life that true faith is there. It always produces fruit unto perseverance, although it looks ugly sometimes, one man translated this statement, constantly applying themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Just think if you had a church of, let's say, 100 members, and and 25 of them fit this model, and 75 of them came sometimes, not other times, what's going to happen? At some point, at some point the twenty five are going to go to the seventy five percent dudes or chicks or whoever uh, no can he be as the Scottish people say you can 't do this this is not we're not building we 're building a church within a church because twenty five percent of our hundred percent are doing these things like they committed to when they came into the church, right We have a constitution and a confession and We said we'd do certain things. But if 25%, by the way, I'm not talking about our church, but if the shoe fits, you know, wear it. Um, There's the scold. If we have 25% doing and being what they ought to be and 75% not, uh, we won't grow proportionately. And at some point, oh, I can talk about our church. At some point, we're going to say, in our, at least in our hearts, why don't you bring some food? You know, to the 75 people that are eating our food every week. By the way, if you don't bring food and you can't and because of various circumstances, I get it. I'm not trying to, I'm not talking about you. I don't even know if I'm talking about anybody. I'm talking about that church with 100 members, which we're not, and the 75 and 25. That's who I'm talking about. Down the street or wherever they might be constantly applying themselves to instruction from appointed church leaders, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, tithes and offerings, sharing your goods, your food, your time, your gifts, your graces with the saints, the breaking of bread, the supper. I think they took it weekly. You want an argument for that? The Lord's Day is a weekly occurrence. I think the Lord's Supper is the same thing. And the first century, I think, first century document called the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve, you can probably get it online. It's not very long. But there's an article in there. Is it chapter 14 or paragraph 14 or whatever? And it could have been written as early as 50 A.D. Because I want to take the 50 A.D. uh, dating. Some people date it around 100 A.D. But it says this. On the Lord's own day, gather together and break bread. That's not all it said, just break bread. But it did say break bread. And you read it in context, you're going, okay, that's the Lord's Supper. Whoever wrote this used the same Greek word used twice in the New Testament for the Lord's day and the Lord's Supper. They seem to uh, go together together. Uniquely appointed by the Lord is the day of worship and the supper during worship. And they seem to take it uh, weekly. They constantly were applying themselves to that. I I think I've said this before, but if you read ancient church history, uh, there's enough evidence to say that in the first century, at least in the second century, the normal church services were like two or three hours, I think is three hours, there was usually a reading. Uh, initially, the Old Testament, and then slowly but surely, as the Gospels and the Epistles were written, they had these scriptoriums—these places where scribes would copy the apostles' letters—and they'd send them to churches. That's why, you know, by the fourth or fifth century, there's this wide distribution. Of new what we call New Testament writings all over the place because the Christians took the apostolic writings and the apostolic men's writings Mark and Luke were weren't apostles but they were connected to apostles they took them seriously and so these things were uh, spreading abroad and people were gathering every Lord's Day and somebody sometimes they called him the president uh, would get up the pastor. And he'd read Holy Scripture to them, and there'd be a, 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 a psalm or a hymn that they'd sing, and then they would have prayers. And I think they, they stood, uh, did they stand with their head looking up and their eyes open? I think they might have done The Prayer postures are kind of interesting thing to study. Um, I have a friend whose church has kneeling benches, and they kneel. Matter of fact, I preach at a church, remember that, honey, where they they knelt, everybody kneels during prayer, and you're going like, they don't have a kneeling bench at that church, it's Matt Stahl's church, by the way. Uh, But they prayed, and then after prayers, there'd be singing of a hymn again, or a singing of a psalm, and then there was their public instruction, uh, preaching initially, preaching based on the Old Testament about Jesus, And when they started to receive more of the letters, then they would expound those letters, the gospel uh, accounts and the letters. I don't know how long the sermons would be, probably way longer than mine, because I have self-control. There would be sermons. Okay, so the word is read and responded to, prayed and responded to, preached and responded to. And then guess what they did before they took the Lord's Supper? They said, to all non-baptized people, thank you for coming. You can wait for us outside or we'll see you next week. And they dismissed the dogs. That'd be weird. Well, let's think if we were that 100-member church. And I said, okay, it's time to take the Lord's Supper. If you're not a member of our church, uh, we'll see you. Thank you for coming. You can wait for us outside. Um, or see you next week. That would be so offensive in our ecclesiastical, American ecclesiastical culture, wouldn't it be? That's apparently what they did. Congregations. And slowly but surely, the acts of the risen Lord Jesus produced congregations all over the ancient world. They preserved the written word of God the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, and passed it on from generation to generation. And the proclamation of the word of God created the people of God and the churches of God. Preaching uh, brings the church. Uh, Actually, preaching the word brings the church. Uh, The church didn't create the word. The word ultimately comes from God to prophets and apostles, and then they... Write it, okay? But the proclamation, the ministry, this is my contemplation, by the way, the ministry of the word preached, created, creates churches. And churches are made up of individuals who have repented and believed in Christ and been baptized and, yes, that's right, agree to continue steadfastly in Instruction, fellowship, supper, and corporate prayer. But it is the ministry of the word preached that creates uh, the church. In Acts two forty seven, we can we read this: praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the who added, and the law and the apostles. No, and the Lord, who's the Lord there? I think it's the Lord Jesus. This is why I'm saying this is the continued. What he began to do and teach, we find that in the Gospels. What he's continually doing and teaching, we find it in the book of Acts. He is using the apostles initially as uh, his deputies through which he's adding to the church daily those who are being saved. And what is happening for them to be saved, the word, right? They're getting the word of truth out to people. Uh, in Acts 6, 4, you can see this as well. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why? Because the word creates the church, the word proclaimed and believed. We have many, many other uh, Here's verse 7 of Acts 6. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, the Christian faith. Very interesting. Acts chapter 8 verse 4, spread of the word, spread of the church again by virtue of the preaching of the word. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8:12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. I could keep going. I have several other texts. But the point is this. (coughs) That's not the point. The ministry of the word preached creates the church. Okay, so if we're in this 25, 75 church again, okay, just think of 25% are really c- convinced, that's right, our church won't grow unless people hear the word, either personal evangelism or I get them under a sermon or sermons and I tell them, just keep coming, just keep coming, just... I don't understand 90% of it. Then you understood 10% of it? Um, One little word, right? What is that hymn? Martin Luther's hymn. One little word of God can destroy somebody's pride, make them humble, and make them, make them convinced I need to go, I, I need help beyond what men and women can give me. This, we had the 25 and the 75, um, and only the 25 are doing that, and the 75, I guess they're looking at the 25 and going, you guys are nuts. I'm going to be... Nuts, okay? Um, nuts for Jesus? <laughs> Sorry, that sounds like something 60s and 70s, doesn't it? I saw uh, something recently. It says that 86% of people polled said they got to church and ended up being saved through a friend who invited them to church. 6% said it was through the evangelism of the pastor. 86 percent, I don't know, 86 and 6 is 92. I don't know what the other 8 percent is. Probably listened on the internet or something like that. 86 percent. So here, here's the exhortation. Uh, if people are going to get saved by virtue of the word, some of the evangelism in Acts is, is private evangelism. Some of it's public. Some of it's formal teachers. Some of it's discussions, okay? Just various ways. They need to get under the word, Right? Who needs to make sure they get under the word? The pastor. Well, okay. Anyone else? The rest of us, right? Peter wanted people saved, so he got the word out. Others did as well in the book of Acts. Here's my second and final contemplation. The first was, The ministry of the word preached creates the church. Um, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's my second contemplation. And after you believe, get baptized and added to, to the church. If you have believed and been baptized and are not added to a church, get added. If you have believed, been baptized, been added to a church, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the supper, and the prayers. And then stand back quite often and marvel at the grace of God in your life, even though your perseverance as a Christian is not always exemplary. I say this because if you've come to Christ, it's God's doing and not your own. And if you could get out of Christ, you already would have a long time ago, but you haven't, and it's not because of you, it's because of Him. Repentance is a gift, faith is a gift. Baptism is a gift. The apostles' doctrine is a gift. Fellowship with the saints is actually a gift. I am a gift to you, brother. And he is a gift to me. And sometimes we're happy with it. You know how to form Christian character? It takes a whole lifetime. And one of the best ways to do it is be with the same group of people for a long time. Because you know what church hopping often indicates in people that do church hopping? Is their view is everybody else has problems. That's why I had to leave that church and I had to leave that church and I have to leave that church. leave, And there's no depth of fellowship, of friendship with people. I'm looking at people that come to church every week, all both services on the main, so I'm talking about the 25 and 75% church. All this is a gift. The apostles' doctrine is a gift. Fellowship is a gift. The supper is a gift. Church prayer is a gift. And your continuance in these things, as rough and ugly as it may be at times, if you're a believer, even grace to persevere, it's all a gift as well. You know, that one text, that said, and many of the priests believed. When I get back to John's gospel, I stopped where John is giving kind of a rehearsal of the public ministry of Christ. Even though he did all those miracles, you know, most of them didn't believe. Then he talks about the, the religious leaders. He says some of them believed. But because of the Pharisees, because they be kicked out of the synagogue. They didn't confess him. And I think it means there, they didn't confess him publicly. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, that's a public confession. They refuse to do it because they like the praises of men rather than the praise of God. That's, I just preached my sermon from next week uh, in two minutes or less. So, most in this room have confessed him, have made a public confession of faith in Christ by virtue of not just saying things with your lips, but by your willingness to be baptized and formally join yourself with the church. Praise God for that. Thank him for that. That's mercy and grace. But there might be others who say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian but you haven't confessed him publicly in baptism and church membership and steadfastly continuing? That no can he do. Okay, that's not how it works. Now there are ignorant people that I think are genuinely saved, not ignorant like they're dummies. They don't know. They don't know what the next step is. I, I get that. But that can't be any of you today listening to my voice, right? You're no longer ignorant. If I confess Christ, I need to confess Him publicly. How do I do that? I do that by virtue of my lips. I tell somebody in a church, hey, I'm a believer. I want to get baptized. I want to join the church. And you go through with all that process. And you know what that process does for the church itself, or for the person? It's the church corporate, like our membership, saying, yes, you're a brother, you're a sister. We publicly identify you as such. Let's earnestly, steadfastly, earnestly continue in the Apostles' Doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers together. It's a, it's a, it's a way the church puts the stamp of approval on somebody's confession of faith. And it's, very, it's a very public thing in that sense. But without those badges, the badge of confession and baptism, um. And refusal, I mean an absolute refusal to join the church. You expect churches, would you expect a church to nonetheless acknowledge you full-fledgedly like there's nothing wrong? Uh, some churches at some point say you can't take the Lord's Supper with us unless, unless you join our church or find another church. Is there anything wrong with that? I, I find nothing at all wrong with that. Matter of fact, I think it's a, a, it's a good thing. So if you haven't publicly confessed the Lord Jesus and followed through with that confession, I urge you to do so. And if you have, thank the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and these considerations. We ask your blessings upon it. We are sinners. We're all messed up in need of repair. And the only way ultimately to get the repair that we need, to get everything we really need is to find it in Jesus and Jesus alone. God become man for us and for our salvation, did not sin one iota and suffered, not because he sinned, but because we sinned. He provided a perfect righteousness for sinners like us. Forgiveness and cleansing is based on the fact that he took the justice of God for others. Please save those in our midst that might not be saved. And thank you for saving the rest of us. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.